Good morning, church. How's everyone doing? That wasn't very convincing, so I hope you're good. Hope you're doing well this morning. It's good to be in God's house. I'm going to jump right in this morning. Um, If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 8. We're uh, just kind of spending some time looking at these encounters with Jesus. I like these because... As we see one by one, as Jesus encounters different people from different walks of life, we, we get to learn a little bit more about him. Um, we get to see the way he impacts the lives of those that he encounters. Um, and the story today that uh, we're going to share is one of my favorite ones in Scripture. I always just am intrigued by this story. But the title of the message is Caught in a Trap. Now, the first service, somebody said, every time he said that, I was thinking of suspicious minds, caught in a trap. But I, just, I know I already thought about that. But the title is Caught in a Trap. Um, and what we'll see is this woman was caught in the act of adultery And there's a few gentlemen that were using this as an opportunity to try and trap Jesus. And we see that at the end of the story, it's been flipped around and they are actually caught up in their own trap. So it's caught in a a trap and and hopefully we we can learn from this this morning. So I want to go ahead and just start reading the passage and then we'll pause and pray and I'll just share with you uh, this morning. So let's read chapter 8 verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law, says Moses, says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down, rode in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. In this moment, as we open your word, we want to hear from you. God, I want to know you more. We want to know you more. And I pray that you would just challenge us in your word as we look at the text today that we see ourselves and I guess the tendency in ourselves to be guilty of some of the same attitudes as we read about today. I pray, God, that you would just give us hearts to hear, ears to hear, hearts to just receive the seed that you sow in our hearts today, and and even the the, the feet to take the steps in obedience. So, Father, I humble myself before you now, and I just ask that you be glorified in our time together. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this story, the woman caught in adultery, as we Consider this, I want to just kind of pause for a minute and just say this. In 20 years of ministry, there's one thing that has kind of come to the surface here at Living Water is I realize that there are many, many different people that represent many different backgrounds, um, religiously speaking. I mean, we all come from a different background. For some of you, your church experience, maybe you were raised in a church where uh, we focused just 100% on the grace of God, and, and maybe they avoided texts or stories that talked about sin because it made people uncomfortable, so we focus only on the grace of God, and, and that's cool and all, but it just kind of gives us this picture that God's okay with everything, and, and you know, He just loves us the way we are, and it doesn't matter what we do, and I don't think that's healthy. And on the other side of that is the church that I was raised in. Now, I don't think that they intentionally did this. 
But it felt like every sermon was focused on the judgment of God or the sin that I was probably involved in. And so there's just all these sermons and there's this teaching that I grew up in that would almost give you the impression that God was just hiding behind a bush waiting for you to screw up. And I'll just newsflash for you, we're all going to screw up, right? But he's just waiting for you, and God's going to just jump out, jump out with that hammer of judgment and just start to pounce on us. And I think that's an unhealthy balance. And so for us, hopefully, we're committed to a balanced approach to the truth of God's Word, but also the grace of God. And only Christ can balance those two perfectly. Aren't you grateful for the grace of God? Astounded by your mercy and grace, the lyric in that song said a moment ago, it should be astounding for us. So our church experiences, we all come from many backgrounds. The concern, I guess, that we should watch out for if we're not careful is that that can, I guess, affect the way we do life with other people. Our experiences can kind of affect the way we do life with other people. And so if we come in uh, just a big grace background, we might look at people and and recognize that some of the things they're doing are not in keeping with Scripture. And we're like, you know what? Not my my place. I'm just going to leave it alone. I'm just glad they're happy. And we're never willing to call things out and say, hey, you know, brother, sister, that's not right. You You shouldn't be doing that. God's Word speaks against that. Or if we're not careful, the other side of that could be we could become very judgmental, focused only on truth. All the time. And I've met some people before like, my golly, it's just truth, 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 truth. And there's hardly any grace at all. And both of them can be very dangerous. And so what it does is it leads to a couple of things that you don't hear the word much. It's not even mentioned in the Bible, but we see it throughout Scripture and throughout church history, this idea called legalism. And what legalism does is it causes us to look at other people as worse sinners than we are. You know what I mean? It's like if, if you're a legalist, you tend to look down your nose at other people, like at least I'm not as bad as they are. Or maybe injustice, and where we take the, the scriptures and we apply them differently to different people. For instance, um, sometimes we want to throw the word of God at somebody and hammer them with truth, but when it comes to us, how many of you know we want a little grace? Here's another example of that, not in the church. Um, we see somebody driving like a maniac down the highway, and we're usually like, I wish the cop were right here to catch them so they would get hammered for that. But when I get pulled over, when I get pulled over, because I've been pulled over a few times, like, please give me some mercy. Please give me some grace. That's just the way we are, right? And this is just a form of injustice. We're like, I want the rules to apply to y'all, but not to me. And so there's this unhealthy balance there. And if we're not careful, then we can become what Jesus dealt with several times throughout his ministry, um, throughout the Gospels. He was always dealing with these religious, spiritually elite people better than thou, hypocrites called the Pharisees, the teachers of religious law. And he's always going at it with these guys. They're always challenging his authority, and they're always trying to test him. And so here it is again. They're trying to test Jesus. And if you remember, Jesus says several things about them and about the way they did life. They were so focused on looking good in front of the people, they didn't care about the heart, right? The the things that mattered the most, they were just worried about looking good. And so Jesus would say stuff like this, hey, the cup on the outside, it looks clean, but inside it's filthy. First clean the inside of the cup, and then the whole cup will be clean. Another time he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You know, the outside it looks beautiful, but on the inside it's got dead man's bones in it. And he's saying, that's what you guys are like as Pharisees. And another time he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so here's the truth that I think all of us need to embrace and know just to kind of level the playing field. Romans 3.23 says, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen.
All of us, there's no one righteous, not one person. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all come to Christ the same way. We're all made right with God the Father through the same means. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we need to always remember that. And so as we approach this story today, we look at this woman caught in the act of adultery. Um, It exposes this pharisaical, hypocritical tendency in us all. And, And I know it's not one of those it's easy to admit, but... I think we can all be judgmental at times, right? I think that we can all kind of forget to look at our own sins, but be really good at looking at the sins of other people. And so in order to avoid that tendency, which is a trap in and of itself, we look at this passage of Scripture. I think he just kind of exposes that. So chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 begins with kind of the setting. Now the setting is at the temple, Jesus is teaching. Now, if you look before and after this text, uh, Jesus is in in a celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles. There were three feasts that all the Jewish people were required to attend uh, regularly every year, and this was one of them. It was a seven-day feast, and during that Feast of Tabernacle, there were different ceremonies that they would do. So there was this, the pouring of the water uh, ceremony um, where Jesus uses this, I am the living water. Anybody's thirsty, come to me. And then later there's the ceremony of the lighting of the menorah that lit up the temple, which would remind them of the Shekinah glory that led them while they were walking through the desert. And in that context, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And right in between those two, kind of like, almost like it's out of place, is the story of this woman caught in adultery. Now, some have said because of that, uh, that this is not found in earlier manuscripts. Some of your Bibles might say something to that effect. Um, And some have said it's actually... uh, ended up in the, the gospel of Luke at one point. Uh, but I look at it and it's consistent with the character of Jesus and his dealing with sinful people and with the Pharisees are always trying to trap him. And when you zoom out a little bit more and you see the judgment uh, that, they're, uh, that they're doing in chapter 7, he comes back to it after this story, to me it fits. And, and it's a beautiful picture of Jesus dealing with these guys that are just trying to trap him to catch Jesus in a trap. And so it was customary for a rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi, he was a teacher, it was customary for them to go to the temple and then to begin to teach people. So Jesus is at the temple, he's teaching the crowd, there's a crowd that's gathered there, he sat down, which was their custom, was sat down and he would teach the people. Now, a a couple of weeks ago, we talked about another encounter where this man who was paralyzed was lowered through the roof in front of Jesus as he was teaching, he was interrupted by this commotion through the roof. Once again, Jesus is interrupted as he's teaching. And that interruption looks like this in the form of a, a test or a trap for Jesus. So this is verse 3 is, As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. So they put her in front of the crowd Teacher, they said, Jesus, to Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act, in the act of adultery. Now, the law of Moses says to stone her, what do you say? John says they were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. So just imagine for a moment the scene. Jesus is in the temple. He's teaching the people. And all of a sudden, there's a distraction. These religious leaders come walking in. But they come in either dragging or pushing this woman that they say was caught in the act of adultery. And I have to think that they probably had in another hand a stone. Now, biblically speaking, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, there was instruction on adultery. It says if a man and a woman are caught in adultery, the man and the woman are both to be killed. 
to purge the evil from Israel. That was the law of Moses. And the way they would do that is they would stone them until they were dead. Like, just could you imagine throwing rocks at somebody until they gave up their life? That was the law there. And so these Pharisees, these teachers of religious law, know this. They dragged this woman, humiliated, in front of everyone, disgraced, and they put her in front of Jesus. They turned what would be a worship service into a courtroom scene. And they're saying, Jesus, here's what the law of Moses says. What do you, what do you say? Jesus, what should we do? The law of Moses says this. They were not wrong. And so they're trying to trap Jesus. And so I say that because John tells us they're trying to trap them. Also, we know that it was a scam and they were trying to trap Jesus because there's one very important piece of the puzzle missing in the story. If you're going to bring someone accused of adultery to Jesus, what's missing? The man, right? Adultery requires two, and so the man is not there, and so they drag the woman there. That tells us that they they didn't care about the woman. They didn't care about justice. They're just trying to trap Jesus. Some have speculated that the man uh, was not there because maybe he was an accomplice. He was helping those guys out to trap Jesus. For whatever reason, he wasn't there. They brought the woman in front of Jesus and said, the law says, stoner, what do you say? They weren't wrong, but they weren't 100% correct because the law required that both of them should die. And so Jesus is in this trap. They've set this gotcha moment for Jesus. <clears throat> What's he going to do? If he says, no, we don't want to stone her, then he's going against the law of Moses, and they're going to use that against him. You call yourself a teacher, and you're going against the law of Moses, that's heresy, and they've got him. And on the other hand, if he says, you know what, you're right, it says that, get your rocks and start throwing them, boys, now he's in trouble with Rome. Because if you go on later to uh, Jesus when he's being tried and Caiaphas is having him there and he's telling the Jews, you go back and you try him in your own courts and they respond by saying, only Romans are allowed to execute people. Like the death penalty, that's only you Romans. And so this was the, the nature of the time when Jesus lived. And so if Jesus had said, you know, let's just go ahead and kill her for the crime, then he's in trouble with Rome. And so they feel like they've got Jesus, right? They've got him. We set the trap What's he going to do? How's he going to respond? And so before he responds, let me just kind of talk for a moment about this legalism and injustice. Uh, As I said, it's a word that's not found in the Bible, but I think we've all experienced it, whether we knew it by name or not. And we see it in the life of the Pharisees. It's called out on them all the time. But legalism could be just simply a a doctrinal position emphasizing a system of rules and regulations, the to-dos and the to-don'ts, for achieving both salvation and spiritual growth. And so we put all these rules and regulations, and by the time Jesus came along, they'd taken the Ten Commandments and blown that way up. A lot more rules and regulations in order to be considered spiritual. Um, And so this is what, what they were dealing with all the time. And they would evaluate someone's worth and their standing based on their outward ability to conform to these rules. And so they were in the habit of looking down on other people because they didn't wear their phylacteries and they didn't dress the same way and they just weren't the same. So they were steeped in this legalism. And, and, and we, we know that legalism can still be birthed in, in our hearts today, even today in churches. In fact, many people have said, I haven't been to church for years because I got hurt by a church. Chances are they got hurt by legalism. And so legalism looks, there's different ways that that we can look at it, but one of them is tradition. 
Some say, you know, legalism can be tradition. It's just the way we've always done it. It's like we do communion, we don't do communion. We do it this amount of times, we don't do it. This is a style of music we have to do, right? These are the certain um, celebrations that we do. These can become a form of legalism for some. You're like, man, I grew up with just a lot of uh, uh, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. I can tell you the program like the back of my hand, and it becomes a form of legalism. Another form, and this one's probably even more, um, I guess, dangerous, and we probably experienced it more, is the personal convictions. By personal convictions, I mean like things that I'm convicted about as a pastor. These are things that I know, I just feel deep in my gut, these are, these are wrong. And so when I get in the pulpit and teach those as God's truth, that's also legalism. For instance, the church that I grew up in, I remember women didn't wear makeup. That was one of those convictions. Somebody like, man, it's just wrong. You shouldn't wear it. I remember that women didn't wear pants. I remember that there were just certain places you didn't go. Applebee's was a big thing. Like, we want to go eat at Applebee's. Can't do that. They sell beer there. There's a bar there, right? And so even to like, well, to drink beer, to don't drink beer. I've been in churches that had a church covenant that says if you drink, I mean, you can't drink alcohol. People come in, read it, and turn around and walk out. These convictions that are our personal convictions, and we all do it, you got to live this way, you got to walk this way, you got to talk this way. That's a form of legalism. And if we're not careful, these can totally just wreck the relationships that God puts around us. Injustice, where we look at things and we're like, you know, I, I believe God's word and I believe that we should abide by it and, and follow it. Um, and sometimes we adopt this attitude, rules for thee but not for me. That's where our world is today, by the way. Uh, rules for you, and I'm going to hold you accountable to Scripture but sometimes I'm blind to my own disobedience to the Scripture. You get what I'm saying? So this legalism and this injustice is what we see in the life of these people that drag this woman in front of Jesus. That's the test. That's how they laid down the gauntlet. And so how does Jesus respond? Jesus responds, it says, <clears throat> But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. Now, some have speculated, what did he write? And I've heard people say, he's probably writing the name of all their lovers on the ground. We don't know that. We've been trying to reach you with your car's extended warranty. I, you know, we, don't, we know there wasn't that. <laughs> My luck, that's what it'd be. <clears throat> but there's only one other place in Scripture where we hear this reference of the finger of God. You want to guess where it's at? It's in Exodus 31 after God spoke to Moses and he gave him the law, the commandments on the tablet. And it says that he carved out on the tablets of stone written by the finger of God. So some would say, it's kind of interesting that Jesus would stoop down and draw with his finger in the dirt. Maybe, just maybe, he was writing down the Ten Commandments. I don't know. We don't know what he was doing. We know whatever it was and whatever he said changed things uh, drastically. So Jesus stoops down and he writes in the ground. And maybe for a moment they made the connection, the finger of God that wrote the commands. Here's Jesus writing it. I don't know, but just a thought. What was Jesus writing in the sand? That was his response. And some of your versions will say, as though he did not hear them. It's like he just totally ignored what they did. Jesus, this woman is caught. Here's what the law says. What do you say? He's just doodling in the sand. And so they kept pressing him. Like, all right, they, they, they stood up again, or they said, demanded an answer. So he stood up again, and he said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. So he's complying with the law of Moses, like, hey, we know she's guilty of adultery and the law requires that, so, but let me broaden your focus of sin right now, because all you're focused on is this woman caught in the very act of adultery, 
and you're blind to your own sin. So let's broaden that up a little bit. And so whatever he said, whatever he wrote down, all of a sudden he uses a tactic against them that they didn't see coming. He appeals to their conscience. And apparently they were pricked in their conscience. They realized at that moment, Jesus says, whoever's without sin, hello, none of us are without sin. If anyone was without sin, it was Jesus. And Jesus says, any of you who's without sin, let him throw the first stone. Another thing that we need to know is when you're about to execute somebody by stoning them to death, the law said that the, the witness who witnessed the act of adultery was the one to throw the first stone. And after that, everybody else just joins in. So Jesus standing there, he answers, all right, you can stone her, but let the one who has no sin cast the first stone. What is the result of that? He widens the focus for them to see not only her sin, but their sin as, as well. In verse 9, it says, When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. I love this. They set a trap for Jesus. He doesn't take the bait. He answers them truthfully, but he brings to light their own brokenness, their sin, and in that moment, it's just they have no other thing to do but just to walk away. And I love this because I think that it says that, that from the oldest, why the oldest first? Probably because they're, the older you get, the more sinful we know that we are. Amen? When you're younger, we're like, oh, yeah, I don't, we're good. But the older, you're like, man, I'm a dirtbag. We just get older. And we know, right? Or maybe you're older and you've done more. It's like, hey, I'm out. Peace. <laughs> you're right, Jesus. And, and so one by one, these accusers who brought this woman caught in the act of adultery before Jesus, turning a sermon, if you will, into a courtroom scene, what do you do? What is your judgment, Jesus? And when Jesus answers, one by one, I believe they dropped their stones. I did that in the first service. I had three or four people come up and like, you scared the snot out of me. <laughs> they dropped their stones and they left. Until it says that the only one left was Jesus, the crowd that was originally there, listening to him teach, and this woman. And then Jesus deals with the sinner. And this is an important one as well. With these questions, he says, where are your accusers? They were here a moment ago demanding justice. Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? Two words is all is recorded from this woman. Verse 11, no, Lord, she said. And Jesus responds, Neither do I. Now, can I just reason with you for a moment? If anyone was qualified to make that judgment, it'd be Jesus. If anyone was in a position to say, you know what? You're guilty. I mean, it's Jesus. He's righteous, totally righteous. He says, neither do I condemn you. But just so that we know this is not a license to continue in sin, he finishes with these words, go and leave your life of sin. Go sin no more. So we see their truth and grace perfectly balanced in Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture, a beautiful story. And so, neither do I condemn you. I, I want to just kind of go back for a moment and, and, and kind of give some clarity maybe to this. We're talking about the encounters that Jesus had with different people and what we learn about Jesus and what we learn about the impact that he had on the lives of the people that he had the encounter with. And, and this one, I want us to see a picture of a merciful God in heaven. Now, I know Jesus is the one talking. Jesus is the one dealing with this test, this trap that they're trying to set. But listen to what Jesus says later when he returns to his talk about being the light of the world. 
You judge me by human standards, but I do not judge anyone. And if I did, my judgment would be correct, correct in every respect because I'm not alone. The Father who sent me is with me. Your own law says that if two people agree about something, their witness is accepted as fact. I am one witness, and the Father who sent me is the other. Later he says, I have so much to say to you and much to condemn, but I won't. For I say only what I have heard from the one who sent me, and he is completely truthful. I do nothing on my own, but say only what the Father taught me. And so in this encounter, we see the heart of a merciful God dealing with the sinner. Love the sinner, hate the sin. You've heard that phrase before. Not a license to continue in sin, but he addresses it. And he says, hey, listen, I don't condemn you. John chapter 3, verse 17, David mentioned it last week. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him they might be saved. And Jesus shows us this balance of grace and truth so beautifully there as he extends his mercy and his grace to a woman who was on death row, who was possibly seconds away from death, using the law against her, who experienced freedom, who experienced mercy. She was caught and expected judgment, but she received mercy. I wonder if anybody else has ever experienced mercy from God. I know I have. I know when you consider the things that we do, Sometimes it's small, it's not a big deal, but sometimes it's huge. And it's in those moments where you experience the mercy of God, it's a big thing. But as I said earlier, I think the focus is more on the pharisaical, hypocritical tendencies that we can have, that these guys displayed. And I just wonder, you know, as they fell into the trap, how do we avoid falling into the same trap today? Because we can. We can fall into that trap of being judgmental of other people being harsh, holding them to a different standard, maybe not even holding them to the same standard that we hold ourselves to, but how do we avoid that trap which causes us to react judgmentally or with an attitude of self-righteousness towards someone else's sin? I would say two things. Number one, we must remember how much God has forgiven us. You ever consider that for a moment? When you consider, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Like on my best day, it wasn't good enough. and My sin was worthy of death. I was on death row. And Jesus stepped in. Amen? Through the cross. And his mercy was extended to me. And I need to remember that and realize, you know what? There before the grace of God go I. I've been forgiven so much sin. Who am I to point the sin out in somebody else? In fact, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, another verse that was used out of context in my past, um, deals with the subject of judgment. And it begins with verse 37. It says... Judge not lest you be judged. Some people say, ah, you're not supposed to judge. He says, use righteous judgment. Well, what is righteous judgment? He goes on to say, remove the beam from your own eye first, and you see clearly to remove the speck from the brother's eye. So there's this idea that we spur one another onto good works. We help one another out, and, and, and we're to, to call sin out, but we do it very carefully and very lovingly, always with in mind our own sin and how much we've been forgiven. Does that make sense? I remember years ago, we were uh, going to confront a gentleman. That, you know, something came up, and they're like, we got to go talk to this guy. And I don't remember who was with me, but we were in my Jeep, and we were headed to the house, and I just pulled over to the side of the road. And I said, guys, we're fixing to go address another man and uh, you know, his sins. Talk to him about that, and we need to check our hearts first because the reality is all of us sin. And so let's make sure we go in there with that right attitude. And so I would begin the conversation. We're like, look, I'm not coming at you 
as somebody's got it all figured out and who's, you know, squeaky clean. I'm a sinner, just like you're a sinner. But here's something we need to talk about. And I can just tell you it was beautiful how God used that moment to just reconcile and bring back to the light that believer who was struggling in that moment. And I believe it started with us having a humble attitude of our own self, right? Recognizing just how much we've been forgiven from. Do you know how much you've been forgiven? Woo, it's powerful, right? So we must remember how much God has forgiven us. And secondly, we must remember that no one, that no one has the right to throw stones. If Jesus, who was holy, righteous, perfect, if anyone qualified, it would be Jesus. But if Jesus didn't take it upon himself to be the one to say, yep, do it, who am I? Last I checked, I'm not qualified to be a good judge. Right? And so when it comes to throwing stones at the people, we need to be careful and remember that no one has the right to throw the stones. Um, back to Luke 6.38, it says, Given it shall be given unto you, good measure, pressed down and shaken together shall men given to your bosom, for with the same measure that you meet with all, it shall be measured to you. Again, that's King James, but that was a verse that I heard growing up that was all about money. And it makes sense, and that's a, that's a principle that I think is that God rewards. Like, he rewards people who are generous, but the context is judgment. And what he's saying is, be very careful how you exercise judgment, because with the same measuring cup that you use towards someone else, it'll be measured back to you again. And then he goes on to say, just remove the beam of hypocrisy from your own eye first before you handle the speck in your brother's eye. So to avoid this legalism and injustice, just remember how much God has forgiven us and remember that it's not my job, not my role to throw the stones. So I'm going to issue a challenge with you and then I'll, <clears throat> I'll close. Where do you find yourself in the story? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. We can't be Jesus. There's only one Jesus, but you get the crowd, you get the teachers, the Pharisees, and you get the woman and primarily focusing on the Pharisees, do you see the tendencies in your own life to be like them, quick to point out the sin and the shortcomings of other people, yet overlooking your own shortcomings? If that's you, I would, I would just ask you to take that to the Father and say, God, if that's in me, I don't want that to be in me because I don't want to cause more damage. We want to bring people to Christ, not run them away from him. Amen? And so I would say this. Do you, know, do you know God's grace for yourself? Now, some of you say, man, I'm, I identify more with the woman that was caught because I know what that's like to be caught in sin and to feel the weight, the conviction, the guilt of sin. And I told the first service, I, no one will beat me up any worse than I will beat me up. I am my worst critic. And so I struggle sometimes with guilt and with shame over things that probably years ago, but that's just the way I've always wrestled with things. And so the question is, have you received God's grace for yourself? Have I received God's grace for myself? Because we need to, amen? If we've been forgiven, we've brought it to him, we need to be free of that. And so I would say, forgive yourself. If God says you forgive others, we, we, we understand that, but sometimes the hardest thing is just forgiving ourselves. So I would say receive that grace for yourself. Let him forgive you of that guilt and that shame. And secondly, be careful as the hands and the feet of Jesus. Be careful as we do life together in the context of family, in the work, out in public. Whatever it is that we do, be very careful to extend the same grace that we ourselves have received. Aren't you grateful for grace? I, mean, I see. I, mean, I, I was raised in the churches where we're always worried. You've got to be careful of that grace stuff. You've got to be careful not to talk about it too much. People start thinking they can just do anything. No, 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 no. 
It is amazing grace. It's pretty crazy if you think about it, what we deserve and what we get. And that's grace, right? Um, and so it is amazing grace, and I'm grateful for the grace of God. But I'm also grateful for the truth of God because it's through his truth that I'm growing more and more every day in this thing called sanctification in my walk with Christ. And so as we look to his scriptures, we look at it like a mirror. God, what are you speaking to me? Because too many times we look at it like a magnifying glass. What do you want to say to my husband? What do you want to say to my wife? Ooh, my kids need to see this, right? What do we say? I wish so-and-so was here today. No, right? To look at it like a magnifying glass. God, what are you speaking to me today? May God just change us to be his people that are, I mean, effectively ministering and encountering people. He still encounters people. He does it through us. We're his hands, we're his feet. Amen? Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just the challenge. Uh, Lord, I know that we can tend to lean that way sometimes in judgment and uh, criticism and even just like the Pharisees, the hypocrisy. And God, it's not something that we want to be labeled as. It's not something that we enjoy about ourselves, but it is a reality that if not checked, we can all have a tendency to fall into. And we fall into that trap, just like the Pharisees of the day. God, I ask that you'll forgive us of those times and that you will just make it absolutely obvious in our own hearts and minds the amount of sin that we have been forgiven of, the amount of grace that you have shown upon us. And then when we just keep that in the back of our mind as we deal with the other people you bring into our lives, that we would also not be afraid to speak truth, but to speak it in love and to balance that truth with your grace. God, I thank you that you showed us a glimpse of the Father's heart, your heart toward us, that you are merciful. You're not willing that any should perish, but all come to salvation through Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would just um, give us the, the courage to take the steps that we need to take today to be the people you've called us to be. And we ask it all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.